Um, and I, and I want to begin by telling you that I think this is a very important verse of Scripture uh, in, the, um, in the context of clarifying some things for the Christian who seeks to live appropriately. And, 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 and I think there's been a lot of discussion about this, and I hope that I can make this very simple for you. I think it is rather simple, but, you know, there are those who don't agree with uh, me and, um, and have introduced other items, and thus, I, I think, some confusion. I, I am going to be speaking tonight again about dispensationalism. I, I, I introduced, well, I didn't introduce it, but I'm sure you've heard of this before. Now, guys, some of you may be sitting there and thinking, you know, Jimmy, just give me something to get through the day. Give me something to make my marriage better, et cetera, et cetera. And we certainly want to do that and try to do that in, in various uh, ministries around here. But also, there has to always be a, a, a biblical understanding underneath you so that you can live practically. And, and, and I think this is a very practical subject uh, on a question that I think may have troubled some of you from time to time. And, and if it didn't, just be assured that you were right. <laughs> Dispensationalism. Now, guys, I want to start out by saying that this is an intramural debate. You know what I mean by that? That is, this is a debate among brothers. Um, now, I, again, I think it has confused some of the Christian church, but I, I, I do not ever want to be seen as attacking uh, viciously a brother. In fact, I don't ever want to attack viciously anything but ideas and positions. You know, one of the things that the young family um, is so guilty of, I think, is that we're all very verbal. Um, all three of my daughters were verbal, and, and you know it was—it got to be quite a competition just to get a sentence in at our house when the when the girls were around. And we love those times of um, dialoguing. And, and I'm telling you, at our meals, the, the family meals, we're not talking about the election. We're talking about fun, intricate issues. About you know, we've talked about it all. It's just been fun. You know, my my sons-in-law are I mean, particularly my one son-in-law is just brilliant, far brighter than his father-in-law. But uh, where we have erred is that we have slipped over into attacking people. And Francis Schaeffer used to have a, um, uh, a little maxim that he employed at Labrie, and it was this. Um, you can attack anything that you want, ideas, theologies, doctrines, etc., but you cannot attack people. And so we kind of establish that as the rule of our table now. You, can, um, you cannot attack people, but you can attack ideas, positions, um, uh, doctrines, etc. Now, I hope you understand that's what I'm attacking. I will mention one name, but I, I want you to know that I, I think this is a dear brother who, uh, whose book, I think, confused the people of God and uh, set off a round of books in the Christian community. And I think the whole issue is very important, number one, but very simple, number two. And, and I do not know why the confusion. Um, let me read you the text. It is the last verse of chapter 3. Uh, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, guys, um, 
the, Paul first of all, let me remind you that this is the third characteristic of the gospel that Paul preaches. Remember, the first one is in verse 7. It eliminates boasting. This gospel that Paul preaches will eliminate boasting. Number two, there is only one God and one route to him, he says in verses uh, 29 and 30. And then the third characteristic of this gospel is that Paul's gospel always establishes law. It does not undercut law, ever. So the third characteristic that we must get about this gospel that Paul is preaching is that by its preaching, by its correct preaching, it will always establish law. Not undercut it, not set it aside, not demean it, not depreciate it, not devalue it. It will always establish it. Now, guys, um, I... I, I think you can see, or at least I hope you can see, why the question would be asked in the first place. That is, Paul is addressing a question. By the way, this is uh, for you forensic experts. This is what's known as an ad hominem argument. Uh, it's a Latin phrase which means to the man. That is, it's an argument. He's precluding questions that he realizes are in the minds of his audience. And so he says, okay then, do we make void the law? I know you're thinking that. But uh, may it never be. We, on the contrary, establish law. That's what Paul is doing here. He's trying to answer questions that he thinks have arisen um, as he has gone through the process of teaching justification by faith alone. For instance, look with me at verse 20 in chapter 3. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Look at verse 21. Um, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law. Verse 27. Uh, where's boasting then? Is it, it is excluded. By what, by what law? Of works? Um, verse 28. Um, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. And so having emphasized this over and over and over again, it's apart from law, it's apart from works, it's all by faith, then in, his, in the mind of his audience, they are thinking that, okay, is the law then useless? Does the law have any um, appropriate use for anything? Or is it voided by this gospel? And that's the very question that Paul is addressing. Does this gospel render the law null and void. And his answer, which is, I think, very unfortunately translated in the, in the New King James, it says, certainly not. Well, you know, that's a nice, friendly phrase. Oh, certainly not. Oh, can I uh, borrow your car? Oh, certainly not. Uh, can I come over for supper tonight? Oh, certainly not. But, um, or can um, uh, I use your lawnmower? Well, of course you can. I mean, but the point is, that's, that's almost a sweet way to say no. The Greek term that is found there is the strongest piece of negation in the New Testament. It is meganoitoi. May it never be. Paul doesn't say, certainly not. He says, meganoitoi. May it never be. God forbid. May it never be. And so he has strongly negated works in the whole uh, presentation of the gospel in chapter 3 and has said it is not by law that you're ever going to be reconciled to God. And so 
people are in the audience then thinking, okay, Paul, I hear what you're saying, then what, uh, what the, the end result of what you would be saying is that the law has absolutely no place. And his reply to that is, may it never be. On the contrary, the gospel that I am preaching establishes law. Now, guys, that's where this dispensation... Now, may I be fair? Um, I, I wrote up here for you last week that the... Uh, uh, is it C.I. Schofield? Um, uh, is it C.I. or C.W.? I think it's C.I. Schofield Bible. Uh, oh, I've scared one. Um, does anybody else want to leave? <laughs> um, in the C.I. Schofield... What I presented up here is those seven dispensations, you know, last week. Do you remember that? And I said to you, this can be found in the C.I. Schofield Bible. It was the popularizer of dispensationalism. Now, that is the truth. But I have to, in, in all fairness, suggest to you that from what I hear, dispensationalism has modified its position uh, somewhat. And um, uh, whereas the strong positions that used to be held by C.I. Schofield and a, a very good seminary in this country um, have somewhat been mitigated somehow or mollified or lessened or, or shrunk into something more um, uh, digestible. But what I am saying is that you will find this system of seven different dispensations that we, we listed in the Adamic and the Noahic and the um, Abrahamic and the Davidic and the, um, I don't know, some, uh, 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 kingdom, grace, and millennium. I think those are the seven dispensations. But, so let's take the first four or five. I, I don't remember exactly, let's see, um, Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Davidic. Where do you find those characters in what portion of the Bible? The Old Testament. Now, if one of the, the uh, results, the, the, the results of dispensationalism is that if these are dispensations, periods of times that have passed out of practice and are no longer being operated, then what comes of that is that everything back here in the Old Testament is devalued. So what do we find in the Old Testament? the Ten Commandments. And the, a, a 20th century, actually 10 years ago, uh, dispensationalists said that the law, the Ten Commandments, has been replaced by the law of love. And so what you find in the New Testament is nine of those Ten Commandments, uh, that, that would be in the uh, uh, oh, you know what? See, I got it wrong. It's Mosaic, I think. Uh, I, anyway, but in the, the um, ten of those commandments in the Mosaic dispensation, or nine of the ten, have been brought over into the New Testament, uh, you know, and, and, and preached over here, so therefore they're binding. The one that was not brought over in the New Testament is, anybody know? The Sabbath. Sabbath observance. So they will give they will give great credence to the, the nine, but depreciate the whole role of the law. And I say, ladies and gentlemen, it's not only depreciation of the law. 
It's a depreciation of the entire New Testament, uh, Old Testament. And that is a serious blunder, I think. Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard me say this before, but we have, we have gobs and gobs. You go to the average bookstore, and we've got gobs and gobs and gobs of book on, books on uh, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. We've got gobs of, book on, of books on the God, the Holy Spirit. But go into the average Christian bookstore and, and search for something on God the Father. And you'll find a couple of things. Uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. If you can find Charnack's book, The Knowledge of, uh, of God, that's an 18th century book. And, and there's a couple of more. But what I'm saying to you is, I think that's the res or one of the uh, outgrowths of devaluing the Old Testament. And the best book on the first person of the Trinity is the Old Testament. And so our understanding, even for a book like the book of Hebrews, ladies and gentlemen, you will never understand the book of Hebrews unless you understand principles of the Old Testament. And if the, if the uh, Old Testament gets devalued, then we don't spend much time in it. Now, what I'm, what I'm saying is, Paul is addressing that very issue. Are, has the gospel done away with the law? And what is his clear, unequivocal answer? No! And whatever gospel you and I preach must be a gospel that eliminates boasting, that points to one way to this God, and establishes law. I don't see how that can be any clearer in Paul's statement. But we've, we've been confused somewhat, and I, I don't know whether you got into the controversy, but there was a swirling controversy about um, 13 years ago. And the key players was John MacArthur, and a man by the name of Charles Ryrie. And they wrote book, counter book, book, counter book. And John MacArthur was adopting the stance that I'm taking, and this Charles Ryrie was attacking viciously. Well, I shouldn't say viciously. That's an overstatement. Was attacking the position of, of John MacArthur. And I, wasn't, I don't understand this. Paul says, do we eliminate the law somehow? No, 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 God. It may, may have never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Ladies and gentlemen, the law has all kinds of purposes that it plays. It has all kinds of uses in the life of the non-Christian as well as the Christian. And, and if you've ever said, well, you know, I don't travel under the law anymore. I travel under the law of love. Well, I'll say to you, what is love? How do you, how do you love this God? What, what steps do you take to love him? Sing a few courses? Ladies and gentlemen, the way that we express this love for our God is obedience to the law. Now, it's never a, a, a never produces a kind of ethic by which any of us are saved. I hope you understand. I know that.
But what happens, ladies and gentlemen, is that the law is designed to lead us to the gospel. Because the law has convinced us of such failure in our black arts. It has convinced us of their absolute impossibility of ever being right with God. And this law has worked its work of slaying us. And by so doing, this is the message of Paul in the Galatians 3. By its working, it leads us to the gospel where we lay hold of grace and grace only, faith, not works. But then having grasped that, what the law then does, what the gospel then does, is lead us back to the law to tell us, well, what is this God I've committed myself to? What, what is he like? What pleases him? What is a definition of a legitimate ethic? So the law leads me, points me, drags me, tutors me to the, to, to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it has so overwhelmed me with my guilt and shame. And once I have found abundant grace and mercy at the foot of Christ's cross, that gospel then sends me back to the law and says, okay, you are, a, you are a safe man, woman. You are on your way to heaven. You have, you have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But what we expect of you now is to go live in a way that is consistent with the nature and the character of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, how do we know I'll, I'll put it this way. The passage in the Bible that gives us the greatest amount of this, not, not the only insight, but the greatest amount of insight to the character of God is found in Exodus chapter 20. Now, there is much more to be had in the New Testament as we see the nature and the character of God in His grace and abundant mercy in His Son. But guys, we are not then left to say, we are lawless. Now, just to make sure I don't confuse anybody, I am not saying by any stretch of anybody's imagination that once we leave the gospel and head to the cross, or head to the law, that is the thing that ultimately saves us. I, I hope you know that. I'm saying find grace and mercy at the foot of Christ's cross. There only. It will be found nowhere else. But understand. Understand that then this Christ who has died in our place and sent us on our way as forgiven, justified sinners. That Christ says to us, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. What could be clearer? And, and guys, one of my concerns that takes... If you do this to the Old Testament and, and, and law, then what you find substituted in its place is somewhat of a 
a weak morality among Christians. Because they say, I'm living on the law of love. You know, the law is, uh, is um, um, summarized in love. And so, at one point, I heard a Christian pastor say, in my presence, what's a little adultery among Christian friends? Now, that, I don't know what that comes from. I can't trace it back to this. But I'm saying, it's people who have spurned the law as believers who find themselves playing fast and loose with a morality that is supposed to be true of all of us. Why is it the non-Christian world listening to us, ladies and gentlemen? Because they don't see much difference in us and them. If that's all it does for you, then for heaven's sakes, I'm staying out of it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on the path I'm on because it certainly hasn't done much for you. I, oh, I know it changes your schedule on Sunday. But you're still a shark on Monday morning. And, and I think that's all very, very practical. <laughs> I think that is a, a piece of practical understanding that you must get from this verse. Any gospel you possess, any gospel that you hold on to, any gospel that you think saves you, any gospel that you think is worthy of that book is one invariably that will establish law. Well, where did you get that, Jimmy? I got it from Romans chapter 3, verse 31. From the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, whatever gospel you got, if it doesn't establish law, you got the wrong gospel. And so we are people who leave the, the foot of cross, Christ's cross and say, okay, I am committed to that Jesus with my whole heart and soul. I don't want to get a, I don't want to get one inch away from this cross. But now I got to go live. What is it going to do to my ethics at the office? What is it going to do when 1040s roll around? What is it going to do in my marriage? What is it going to do when I uh, when I start disciplining my children? What's it going to do about decisions I make all day long? Well, I can tell you, you've got some guidance. The law. Now, obeying that law, do you hear me? <laughs> Doesn't contribute one iota to your redemption. It's just the, you know, when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <clears throat> it's the yoke of Christ. And the, the New Testament teaches that very thing. That is, take my yoke and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. The commandments of God are not burdensome, says John in 1 John. It's, it's the difference in, you know that song that Dusty Springfield used to, used to sing, I think. That was, you know, when I was in college. But, you know, he ain't hitty, he's my brother. And it's the difference in bondage to law and the love of the Savior. I am going to live as if he is my great lover. And I'm not going to do things that are going to grieve him. Why is that so difficult? 
What is what is there hard to understand about that? I don't understand. I, I don't know. That's my first answer. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why that's hard to understand. But I know this: four books were written by some some giants who were arguing in the in the books back and forth. One shot fired, another shot fired. One the other shot replied. You know, it went on for four books. I read two of them. Now, but I I, I will I do want to say this. <clears throat> Why does it happen? Here's, here's what I would consider the best case scenario. That is, this is attributing everything I can to my brothers uh, like a Charles Ryrie. Um, I think they are men who are so overcome, so overwhelmed by the grace of God that they have set out to do everything that they can to protect it and to keep it from being tainted by any kind of law works. And so, in their effort to defend something that you and I ought to protect as well, they end up um, abusing it. Now, I think the motive is wonderful. Everybody's got to understand that if you're trusting in anything other than God's immense grace, you are lost. With men, salvation is impossible. <clears throat> but with God, all things are possible. It's all His work, ladies and gentlemen. From start to finish, His work. Now, that's the best case scenario. The other suggestion that I want to make is this. There are those, I think, that are not as honorable as, as some of the brothers in the faith that, um, that their effort to undercut and, and eliminate law is because of the very idea, any idea, of law is utterly repugnant to their flesh. Submission to authority Somebody telling me what to do, what I can do, what I can't do. That is unbearable and intolerable for some. You know, I, I was I worked out today and I was coming back and I, I, I was behind this big old gas guzzling thing and and uh, it had um, a bumper sticker on it. And I and you've seen it. It's it's nothing profound. It simply said, God is pro-life. I would love to have an opportunity to, uh, to uh, debate, and I would simply like to say, can I, can I just have three minutes? That's all I'd like. Let's just imagine for a minute. Let's just imagine, you know, I know you don't believe this, but let's just, let's just play a little bit. Let's imagine that God indeed is pro-life. Okay? Let's just imagine He is. Then how are we to understand your utter defense and promotion of abortion. The only way we can understand it is you hate so badly being told what you can do and what you can't do that you are in an all-out effort to do everything that you can to destroy and replace law. It's the only option. I mean, as I was driving, I was saying, oh, what else can they say? Well, we want the rights of our own body. Okay. That's just what I said. <laughs> you so little will tolerate the idea that somebody should tell you 
how your body is to be used, that you're going to go to whatever extreme you can go to to eliminate law. I said to you, ladies and gentlemen, there ain't a law in the world that will save you. Never has been, never will be. There's only one Savior. But that Savior said, and I quoted it in the moment, it's from John 14, 21, by the way. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. I'll say one other thing and I'll quit. I don't know of any piece of argument that demonstrates a greater respect for the law than, than the one that when we understand that when God determined to save you and I from, from the law and its curse, he makes his own son sustain its curse in our stead and to fulfill all of its demands so that he could still be just and the justifier. You get that? I mean, nothing could so communicate the importance of law-keeping than the fact that when God got ready to save us from the curse of it, he put his son in our place to obey it and then to die under its curse. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is rich, full, free, marvelous, better than we ever dreamed, but it's a gospel that establishes law. Is the choir already gone? Yes, they are. Let me pray. Father, um, I, I pray that in my uh, feeble efforts that you have um, prevented me from confusing your people. And I pray, O oh God, that um, I have not attacked people, but attacked issues all for the good of the people of God, so that they might know that there is an ethic that they can go appeal to, there is an ethic that they can learn from, there is something that they can learn from Exodus 20, just as much as they can learn about your nature from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, but maybe not as much, but certainly great insights to the Father. And Father, I, I do pray that... Um, we are a, a group of people, not only agreed on our little doctrinal prejudices, but that we're a people who understand that once the gospel offered us free grace and we took it, it then sends us back to the law to go live like people who are close to the heart and ethic of God. That's what I want to do, Lord. I want to live very much as close as I can, as much as I can in the face of my snarling flesh. I want to live just as much like you as I can. And I only know, I know that the only way I can do that is by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Might all my acts be done. Might all of our acts be done appealing for his strength depending upon his power. Because in the end, Lord God, we want to be people 
that bring you pleasure. And uh, we commit ourselves to all that, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, and good night.